the Giants' War. Zeus from the top of Mount Olympus discerned the superior number of his foes and quite aware of their might concluded that reinforcements to his party would not be superfluous. In haste, therefore, he released the Cyclops from Tartarus, where they had languished so long, stipulating that in exchange for their freedom, they should supply him with thunderbolts, weapons which only they knew how to forge. This new engine caused great terror and dismay in the ranks of the enemy who nevertheless stood rallied and struggled valiantly to overthrow the usurper and win back the sovereignty of the world. During ten long years, the war raged incessantly, neither party wishing to submit to the dominion of the other, but at the end of that time, the rebellious titans were obliged to yield. Some of them were hurled into Tartarus once more, where they were carefully secured by Poseidon, Zeus's brother, while the young conqueror joyfully proclaimed the vic his victory. The scene of this mighty conflict was supposed to have been in Thessaly, where the country bears the imprint of some great natural convulsion, for the ancients imagined that the gods, making the most of their gigantic strength and stature, hurled huge rocks at each other and piled mountain upon mountain to reach the abode of Zeus, the thunderer. Cronus, the leader and instigator of the revolt, weary at last of bloodshed and strife, withdrew to Italy, or Hesperia, where he founded a prosperous kingdom and reigned in peace for many long years. Zeus, having disposed of all the titans, now fancied he would enjoy the power so unlawfully obtained, but Gaia, to punish him for depriving her children of their birthright, created a terrible monster called Typho, Typhus, or Typhon which she sent to attack him. He was a giant from whose trunk 100 dragon heads arose, flames shot from his eyes, nostrils, and mouth, while he incessantly uttered such blood-curdling screams that the gods in terror fled from Mount Olympus and sought refuge in Egypt. In mortal fear lest this terror-inspiring monster would pursue them, the gods there assumed the forms of different animals, and Zeus became a ram, while Hera, his sister and queen, changed herself into a cow. The king of the gods, however, soon became ashamed of his cowardly flight and resolved to return to Mount Olympus to slay the Typhus with his terrible thunderbolts. A long and fierce struggle ensued, at the end of which Zeus, again victorious, viewed his fallen foe with boundless pride, but his triumph was very short-lived. Enceladus, another redoubtable giant, also created by Gaia, now appeared to avenge Typhus. He too was signally defeated and bound with adamantine chains in a burning cave under Mount Atena. In early times, before he had become accustomed to his prison, he gave vent to his rage by outcries, imprecation, imprecations, and groans. Sometimes he even breathed forth fire and flames in hopes of injuring his conqueror. But time, it is said, somewhat cooled his resentment, and now he is content with, the, with an occasional change of position, which, owing to his huge size, causes the earth to tremble over a space of many miles, producing what is called an earthquake. 
Zeus had now conquered all his foes, asserted his right to the throne, and could at last reign over the world undisturbed. But he knew that it would be no small undertaking to rule well heaven, earth, and sea, and resolved to divide the power with his brothers. To avoid quarrels and recriminations, he portioned the world into lots, allowing each of his brothers the privilege of drawing his own share. Poseidon thus obtained control over the sea and all the rivers, and immediately expressed his resolve to wear a symbolic crown composed exclusively of marine shells and aquatic plants, and to abide within the bounds of his watery realm. Hades, the most taciturn of the brothers, received for his portion the scepter of Tartarus in all the lower worlds, where no beam of sunlight was ever allowed to find its way, while Zeus reserved for himself the general supervision of his brother's estates and the direct management of heaven and earth. Peace now reigned throughout all the world. Not a murmur was heard except from the Titans, who at length, seeing that further opposition would be useless, grew reconciled to their fate. In the days of their prosperity, the Titans had intermarried. Cronus had taken Rhea for better or for worse, and Iaptus had seen, loved, and wedded the fair Clymen, one of the ocean nymphs, or Oceanides, daughters of Oceanus. The later pair became a, the proud parents of four gigantic sons, Atlas, Menaceus, Prometheus, Forethought, and Epimetheus, Afterthought, who were destined to play prominent parts in Grecian mythology. Prometheus At the time of the creation, after covering the newborn earth with luxuriant vegetation and peopling it with living creatures of all kinds, Eros, Eros? Eros. Eros perceived that it would be necessary to endow them with instincts which would enable them to preserve and enjoy the life they had received. He therefore called the youngest of the youngest two sons of Iapetus to his aid, and bade them make a, ju a judicious distribution of gifts to all living creatures and create and endow a superior being called man to rule over all the others. Prometheus and Epimetheus' first care was very naturally to provide for the beings already created. These they endowed with such reckless generosity that all their favors were soon dispensed, and none remained for the endowment of man. Although they had not the remotest idea how to overcome this difficulty, they proceeded to fashion man from clay. They first molded an image similar in form to the gods, bade Eros breathe into its nostrils in the spirit of life, and Athene, Pallas, endowed it with a soul whereupon man lived and moved and viewed his new dominion. Justly proud of his handiwork, Prometheus observed man and longed to bestow upon him some great power unshared by any, any other creature of mortal birth, which would raise him far above all other living beings and bring him nearer to the perfection of the immortal gods. Fire alone, in his estimation, could effect this, but fire was a special possession and prerogative of the gods, and Prometheus knew they would never willingly share it with man, and that, should any one obtain it by stealth, they would never forgive the thief. 
Long, he pondered the matter and finally determined to obtain fire or die in the attempt. One dark night, therefore, he set out for Olympus, entered unperceived into the gods' into the gods' abode, seized a lighted brand, hid, in it, hid it in his bosom, and departed unseen, exulting in the success of his enterprise. Arrived upon earth once more, he consigned the stolen treasure to the care of man, who immediately adapted it to various purposes and eloquently expressed his gratitude to the benevolent deity who had risked his own life to obtain it for him. From his lofty throne on the topmost peak of Mount Olympus, Zeus beheld an unusual light down upon earth. Anxious to ascertain its exact nature, he watched it closely and before long discovered the larceny. His anger then burst forth terrible to behold, and the gods all quailed when they heard him solemnly vow he would punish the unhappy Prometheus without mercy. To seize the offender in his mighty grasp, bear him off to the Caucasian mountains and bind him fast to a great rock was but a moment's work. There a voracious vulture was summoned to feast upon his liver, the tearing of which, from a side by the bird's cruel beak and talons, caused the sufferer intense anguish. All day long the vulture gorged himself, but during the cool night, while the bird slept, Prometheus's suffering abated, and the liver grew again, thus prolonging the torture which bade fair to have no end. Disheartened by the prospect of long years of unremitting pain, Prometheus at times could not refrain from pitiful complaints, but generation after generation of men lived on earth and died, blessing him for the gift he had obtained for them as at such a terrible cost. After many centuries of woe, Hercules, son of Zeus and Alcmene, found Prometheus, killed the vulture, broke the adamantine chains, and liberated the long-suffering god. The first mortals lived on earth in a state of perfect innocence and bliss. The air was pure and balmy, the sun shone brightly all the year. The earth brought forth delicious fruit in abundance and beautiful fragrant flowers bloomed everywhere. Man was content. Extreme cold, hunger, sickness, and death were unknown. Zeus, who justly ascribed a good part of, the, of this beatific condition to the gift conferred by Prometheus, was greatly displeased and tried to devise some means to punish mankind for the acceptance of the heavenly fire. With this purpose in view, he assembled the gods on Mount Olympus, where in solemn council they decided to create woman. And as soon as she had been artfully fashioned, each one endowed her with some special charm to make her more attractive. Their united efforts were crowned with the utmost success. Nothing was lacking except a name for the peerless creature. And the gods, after due consideration, decreed she should be called Pandora. They then bade Hermes take her to Prometheus as a gift from heaven, but he, knowing only too well that nothing good would come to him from the gods, refused to accept her and cautioned his brother Epimetheus to follow his example. Unfortunately, Epimetheus was of a confiding disposition, and when he beheld the maiden, he exclaimed, Surely so beautiful and gentle a being can bring no evil, and accepted her most joyfully. The first days of their union were spent in blissful wanderings, hand in hand, under the cool forest shade, and weaving garlands of fragrant, 
fragrant flowers and in refreshing themselves with the luscious fruit which hung so temptingly within reach.